You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for joining me. This podcast is week seven of Known, a nine-week study on the Gospel of John. This week, we discuss John chapters 14 through 17 and consider what Jesus' last words to the disciples might mean for us. This teaching corresponds with the homework that begins on page 43 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com slash known. There's something really fascinating, I think, about the last words that people say, right? You always hear about somebody's famous last words, the last words that they uttered. If it's someone you're close to, the last conversation you had with them before they died is one that's kind of burned into your memory. Now, if the conversation was a good one, then it can encourage you. It can be a fond memory. But if it was a bad one, it can haunt you, really, for the rest of your life. Now, Jesus had the benefit of knowing that his time was drawing near. He kept telling them, the time is here, the time has come. And so he spent that last night of his life, the last night of his freedom, really, with the disciples, encouraging them and emboldening them for what was to come. It's almost like he was a coach giving a locker room pep talk. You know, get your game face on. You got to get ready. Things are coming, and you got to be ready to deal with it. When he spoke to them in these four chapters that we had this week, John 14 through 17, he was really trying to prepare them for what was ahead of them. And the first thing... I think I have a list of six, six main points that he covered for them, and we're going to try to talk about them all. So the first thing that he told them was that you've got to have faith. If you're going to make it through what lies ahead, you've got to have faith. That's the first thing he told them in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, they had a lot to be troubled about. You know, if you just remember just a few minutes prior when Jesus washed their feet and spoke to them after that, he had just told them that one of them would betray him. So they're kind of looking around. Who's, who's that going to be? He had just told them that he was leaving them. He said that in John 13, 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 33. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he told them that he was leaving them. And then Peter tells them, no, 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 I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, well, actually, no, you're going to deny me. And so he's just kind of dropped all of these bombs on them. And then the next thing he says is, let not your hearts be troubled. They had plenty to worry about, but Jesus was telling them that they needed to trust him, that in the face of everything that he just said, that they could still trust his word and that everything was going to be okay. And despite all of that, he insists that they have to believe in him. They have to take everything they have seen, everything they have heard, all the works they have seen and perform, and they have to trust those things. Because there was coming a time when it would look like there was no hope. Jesus knows what's ahead of him. He knows that the cross is there, and it's going to seem like he has abandoned them. And for a few days there, at least before the resurrection, it would look like he was just another man, just another prophet, 
just somebody else who died. And so he was telling them, trying to prepare them from a lot ahead and said, no, you have to believe in me. And then he goes on in verse 2, he says, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. And he's telling them, you know, it might look like I'm leaving you, but I'm coming back, and my leaving has a purpose. You know, he, he promises that he's getting thing ready, things ready for us. He's preparing for our arrival. And when I read this, it makes me think of adoption in a way. He says that I am going and I will take you, I'll come again, I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He's trying to bring them home. And, but before we can go home, he has to go and get it ready. And the vision that he paints of this place where he's going is this palatial estate. You know, a lot of times we think about heaven, we think about all these separate mansions and glory. But Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. And what he's saying is, I mean, I can't even imagine how vast it is. But almost like we'll each have our own royal suite there, like the president's suite at a hotel room. It's not going to be like just a paltry little room it's an apartment a posh lavish apartment that he is going to prepare for us and just like that family who's receiving that long-awaited adopted child the whole time they're waiting for the travel papers they're waiting for the approval to where they can go and they can get that child they're getting ready they're getting the clothes ready they're getting the kids room ready they're preparing for the child's arrival and that's the picture that Jesus is painting here he's getting ready for the day when we'll join him and when we will finally and forever be home and this is the hope that anchors us when it seems like everything is falling apart because Lord knows it looked like it was falling apart for them the man that they had been following for the past three years was under attack there were people out to arrest him they had given up their lives and their livelihoods to follow him and it was all disappearing like quicksand right before their very eyes but Jesus gives them this hope to hold on to he promises he says I have come I will come again and when he returns then we get to leave with him and that's the hope that we hold on to now but this promise only holds true for those who believe in him. In um, 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He came, it told us in John 1, to make the Father known. He is the way the only way that the Father has chosen to reveal himself to us. If you remember way back all those weeks ago, it said that he came into the world because the world did not know him. And so in order for us to know the Father, we have to know Jesus. Jesus is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. Now, to say that Jesus is the only way to know God is really kind of unpopular. It's not something that's accepted in our culture it seems like the only thing that's acceptable is to claim that every religion is equal and valid before God. And I think that sometimes 
Because under our law, at least in the United States, because everyone has equal rights to practice religion, then we want to say then that every religion is equally valid, but it's not. That puts us in a really precarious position. Just because the religions, we are equally able to practice religions under our law, whatever you choose, does not mean that those religions are equally true. They're not. Jesus says he is the way, the truth. And in our country where it's practically sacrilege to proclaim something like that because our culture worships the idea of um, the self. You know, you do what you want, I'll do what I want. That's good for you, this is good for me. And it seems like there is no truth. The only truth is that there is no truth, right? There is no capital T absolute truth in our culture. But that's completely contrary to what Jesus says here. It's an astonishing claim that he makes that we have to hold on to and that we have to cling to. Because if Jesus is not the way, then why would he come and die? Why would God come and sacrifice himself, give up his life, give up glory in heaven, humble himself like a servant, be subject to ridicule, tortured, hung on a cross and mocked and killed, why would he do that if it wasn't necessary, if there was another way? It doesn't make any sense. Several years ago, I went to Ghana with a group from school, and we visited, we drove all over the country. It wasn't a mission trip. It was a trip to observe different ministries and the way that people ministered in that part of the world. And I'll never forget, one of the places that we went to, the village was called Ho. It was not really a village. It was a huge city. Um, But the pastor there, one night we went to church with him, and then the next day he kind of walked us around the city and gave us a tour. This is him. Pastor Jonas was his name. And we were walking around just kind of talking, and one of the main problems that they had there was that, that the church was facing was that African traditional religion, you know, all these gods and different kinds of things, was kind of intersecting with the Christian faith. There's also a strong Muslim presence, and so they had all these things that people were trying to tie together. And as we were walking and talking about that, one of the students asked him, how does that work? What does that look like here? And he stopped, this is him, and he pointed to the tree that was in his garden, an offense, and he said, if I want to eat the fruit off of that tree, it was a plantain tree, then I have to enter by the gate. He said, now there's a lot of ways you could come up with to get to the tree on your own. You could try to scale the fence. You could try to tunnel under it. You could try to tear the fence down. But the owner of the tree does not take kindly to intruders. The only way The only proper way to get to the tree is to go through the gate. And then he said, Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way to get to the Father, the only way to know the Father, the only way to get to heaven is to go through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, not a way. To know Jesus, he tells the disciples here, is to know God. He says, "You have, if you had known me, you would know my Father 
from now on you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus and God are one and the same. You can't know one without the other. If you know Jesus, then you know God. If you know God, you know Jesus. Jesus is the only way. And he's, he's telling them, the Father dwells within me. He is in me. I am in him. My words are his words. My works are his works. We are the same. You must believe in me. You must believe this about me. And then the second thing he told them, after he told them he had to have faith, he, he assured them that they were not alone. You are not alone. And he promises them in the next set of verses, starting in verse 15, that there is a helper coming. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Just like we know the Father because we know the Son. We know the Spirit because we know the Son. Knowing one is to know all of them. They are three in one. They are all the same. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's keeps reiterating the same points. He's really driving it home that this promise that he gives them is a precious promise of presence. You know, God doesn't, he doesn't promise us that life will be easy. He doesn't promise us that we'll be able to make it through unscathed. But he does promise to be with us through the storm. He promises that we will have someone who dwells within us to lead us and to guide us in truth. You know, Jesus came and he dwelt among us. That's what it says in John chapter 1, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then he sends the spirit to dwell within us. And if something is within you, it is always with you. You cannot run from God if you are a believer because God has sent his spirit to dwell within you. He is always there. And the Spirit will help those who love Jesus keep His commandments and live according to His Word. He is the still small voice that reminds us of truth and tells us which way to go. In verses 26 through 27, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit has two functions, to teach us and to help us remember Jesus' Word, which is really reassuring to me. Because in those situations when... I don't really know the right thing to do. I have a hard time discerning which way to go. Then the Holy Spirit is there to guide us. We pray about it and we ask for God's guidance, and He does. You know, many times we say we don't know what's right, but we do. We just don't want to take that hard step sometimes. The Holy Spirit is always there with us. And even though Jesus won't be with them physically anymore, they should still order their lives around their love for him. And I wanted to talk about this for a minute because Jesus doesn't say you should obey me because I am God. You should obey me because I am sovereign. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there must be something about the love that compels us to act in a way that honors him. We seek to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God because we love him. It's not, the Christian life is not about 
following a list of rules and regulations. It's not about this checking things off the list and making sure that we're doing everything right every single minute of the day. It is about the relationship and how that relationship changes our behavior. As an example of this, we can talk about marriage. You know, before Dennis and I got married, I was free to date other people. I was free to come and go as I pleased, really. I was free to, you know, do all sorts of things that I can't now. Because we are married and the relationship changes the behaviors that are appropriate for me because now I am his wife. It is no longer appropriate for me to date other people because I have a relationship with Dennis. We are married. We have a covenant. You know, we belong together. And it's the same thing or it should be the same way with us and Jesus that love relationship that we have with Jesus should change us. It should change the way we behave. There are things that are no longer appropriate for us because of the relationship we have with him. It is not about following the rules. It's about honoring him with our lives, through our lives, ordering our lives in a way that reflect the relationship that we have with him so that our lives then become this living testimony to his goodness and his glory and his grace and his work within us, that our lives become this symbol that's flashing toward the relationship. And he tells them that, he, that he's telling them all of these things ahead of time, he says in verse 27, so that they will have faith. He wants them to know that no matter what happens, no matter what things look like, no matter the circumstances, he has a plan for the future and he's in control of it. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, he tells them again, don't worry, I've got this. It may look like I don't have it, but I've got this. You don't have to be worried. Don't be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and I will come to you. He is coming back and he wants them to know that they are not alone while he is gone. The third thing he tells them in John 15 is that if you want to flourish, you must abide. Fruitfulness, if you think about it, is the whole point of a vineyard. Nobody plants a vineyard if they don't want grapes. You plant the vineyard so that you can get grapes, right? Well, if you're not getting grapes, then what's the point of the vineyard? Fruitfulness, bearing fruit, is the point of our lives as believers. It's the proof of our abiding and the evidence of a close relationship to the vine. So when Jesus says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Well, this passage brings up a lot of points about the believer's life and what should happen now that we have faith, now that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Those are the two things he's talked about. Now we must flourish and we must grow. He is not content to leave us as we are. He wants us to change. He wants us to be better. Now, one of the things that has always disturbed me about this passage is the talk about these branches being cut off and thrown away, right? If any, you know, if there is a branch in me that is not bearing fruit, we'll chop it off. And, and so it, if you read it, there is a way to read it that sounds like someone is losing their salvation, right? That there was a believer who wasn't doing so good, and then they got cut off. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think that Jesus has made it quite clear, especially in the Good Shepherd passage when he talks about how his sheep are firmly in his grip. He has not lost a single one. He has a hold of them, and he talks about it again in chapter 17. Those you have given to me I have not lost. I am holding on to them. So he's not talking about really believers. I think he's talking about people who maybe have an external kind of relationship with him, but not internal. So these would be the people who maybe they were raised in church, but then as an adult, they don't go anymore. They maybe go on Christmas and Easter. They know enough about God to claim some sort of relationship with him, but they don't actually have a relationship. Does that make sense? So it's Christians, Christians, cultural Christians, I should say, rather than those who have truly surrendered their lives in faith to Christ because there's a difference. And Jesus is telling them this is how you know the difference. This is how you know the difference between those who are true believers and those who are just pretending, you know, those who don't really know me at all. And his point is that if you are a believer, you should be continually growing in your godliness that the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you start to look like him, the more you start to reflect him to the world, the more you um, grow in holiness. This is about our sanctification. That's a churchy word for growing in godliness. That's the process of being made holy. And it's a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. Nobody's perfect. So it's not to discourage us to say that if you're struggling in an area or you're not there yet, that um, you're going to get chopped off. That's not what it means. Because I think we can all look back at our lives and see where we started. We can see what our lives were like when we met Christ and how he has changed us along the road. And even though we're not where we should be yet, we are so far from where we started out. Or at least we should be. That's what this passage is saying. And I wanted to take a close look at this verse, verse 2 here. Chapter 15, verse 2. It says, Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. So there's two kind of verbs in this verse one of them is translated takes away that's for the branches that don't bear fruit and the other one is translated prunes 
Now, in, in Greek, this is kind of a play on words. The words rhyme, okay? So for the ones that don't bear fruit, he arios. For the ones that do bear fruit, he catharios. And the translation um, doesn't really capture the essence of it. Ario does mean to cut off. So those are cut off and cast away. But the cathario, that's translated as prunes for those that are bearing fruit, um, it's the same word that we get our word catharsis from. So what is catharsis? Does anyone know? Like if you have a cathartic cry, like it's cleansing. It's this idea that for those who are in Christ, for those who are attached to the vine, who are abiding in him, who are living in him, who are dwelling within his presence, that the Father cleanses, he purifies, he nurtures, he prunes, he does all of these things to us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit within us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word pruning, I think of shears, right? Does that sound comfortable? It is uncomfortable, this process of sanctification, and sometimes it hurts when God has to snip away those areas that are displeasing to him, those areas that are keeping us from being fruitful for him. It is not pleasant, but it is necessary. You know, because when God takes something away like that, he's going to replace something, replace it with something better. He does it so that we can become the people that he wants us to be, so that we can bear the fruit of love and joy. Do you want me to sing that? Do you all know the song? I sang it as a child, and now Kendall sings it on Wednesday nights in choir and said, the fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut. That's right. Fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut. If you want to be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then it goes on. Fruit of the Spirit is not a banana. Okay. And it goes on and on and on. But you know what? My three-year-old, no, she's four now. She's four. My four-year-old <laughs> knows the fruits of the Spirit. And these are the things that God is trying to cultivate within us to cleanse us from all of that impurity, to cut off the things that aren't pleasing to him and to replace it with something beautiful instead. And that's what it means to be attached to the vine. We are attached to him because he is the source of life. He is where we get our sustenance. He is where we grow. If we are not attached to him, we can't grow we can't become better and Jesus is not content to leave us as we are he is looking for the fruit of a transformed life in us you cannot be a follower of Jesus and look the same as you did before you met him it's not possible Jerry Bridges says in the pursuit of holiness that true salvation brings with it the desire to be made holy so if you truly know Christ if you have true faith if you really love him and you are really surrendered to him then you can't help but be transformed by it that's how God works within us and the reason it's so important for believers to have faith to have the Holy Spirit to grow in godliness is because Jesus tells them in the next section that this will not be easy Life is not going to be easy for you. He tells them, in this world, you will have many troubles. He tells them, the world's going to hate you. 
Newsflash, the world doesn't like it when you tell them that their ways are evil. Anyone notice that? And he's saying that it's necessary to abide and it's necessary to grow because without it, you're not going to have the strength of character that you need to survive. You must do these things. If you're going to make it through what lies ahead, you have to be stronger. Your faith has to be stronger. You have to be stronger. You have to be patient. You have to have joy. You have to have love and gentleness and self-control. You have to have all of these things when the world is hating you. In order for you to be my disciple, in order for you to be my representative in this world, you must be able to do these things. He tells them that there will be trouble in this world. There's no question about it. I think sometimes we're kind of caught off guard when something bad happens to a good person. They get cancer, and there's a car accident, and their house burns down. Like, all these things pile up on them. It happens. Like, it happened to Job, right? Well, what happened with Job? Did all of those things happen to Job because he was bad or sinful or rebellious against God? It was his faithfulness. That brought that on him. Job was tested because of his faith. And I think the same thing happens to us sometimes. Not just with the hatred of the world, but sometimes the circumstances that we face, the trouble, the sorrows, the heartaches, the pain, the waiting, the tears, the agonies that we go through are producing in us something that cannot be won without it. And Jesus tells them, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And he tells them again that the people who have rejected them are without excuse, who have rejected him are without excuse because they have heard the truth and have rejected it. They have seen the works that he did, and they have rejected those. And because they have rejected Jesus, of course they're going to reject us. Of course they're not going to like what we have to say. Because they are still in the dark. Remember, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. What happens when you turn the light on, or when you, when you turn a rock over and expose all the creepy crawly things living underneath it? They scatter, right? They hide from the light. They don't want to be exposed to the light. And that's what's happening when the world hates us. Now, here in the U.S., we have it pretty easy. I mean, we may like to talk about the way we're being persecuted, the way this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And it's true that our culture is turning against Christian values in a lot of ways. But we are still not facing the level of persecution that our brothers and sisters are around the world. What we have is light and momentary compared to what they face day in and day out for their faith. So we need to remember that even though it looks bad, Jesus has it. He's in control. He knew it was going to be this way. And he promises them that the troubles will come. The world will hate them and the troubles will come, but he also promises that they won't last forever. In 16 verses 4 through 14, 15, he reminds them again that the Holy Spirit is coming. You've got the Spirit to help you through these troubling times. You are not alone in this. 
you need to remember that the Holy Spirit is on your side and you need to remember that this will not last forever. It's temporary. The sorrow and the weeping, it all fades in comparison to the joy that comes from knowing Christ and knowing that the troubles of this world are fleeting compared to eternity in heaven with him. When we look at what happened to Jesus, why would we expect anything better? But the great thing about this this speech that he's given to him, them, this encouragement that he's given to them, you know, they don't know what lies ahead. They don't know. I mean, they might suspect that Jesus is going to be arrested soon, but they don't know when it's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen after that. They don't know really how the trial is going to go. They don't know that he's going to be hanging on a cross. And they certainly don't know that the resurrection is coming. I mean, he told them, he alluded to it. But you can tell by their reactions after he dies that they don't necessarily think he's coming back anytime soon. In Luke 24, Luke chapter 24, there's a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're they're going there. This is after Jesus has died. He is in the tomb, or they think he's in the tomb. He's really resurrected, but they don't know it yet. And they have been to Jerusalem, but now they're going home because Jesus died. Jesus meets them on the road. They don't know it's Jesus. They're just walking back home. And this guy comes and joins them on the journey. And they start talking. And he says, why do you look so sad? And they say, how is it possible that you have not heard what happened? How do you not know about all this? And they tell him in Luke chapter 24, verse 19. They say, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. That's past tense. They weren't hoping anymore. Jesus died and they were going home. They did not know what was coming. They didn't know what was just around the corner for them. And so when we get to John chapter 16, verse 16, he says, A little while and you'll see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. He's kind of alluding to it, like, I'm going to be gone for a while, three days, but I'm coming back. It's just a little while, short trip, I'll be back soon. But they're, they're confused, they don't understand. A little while, what do you mean by that? And so he, he tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. They don't know it yet, but they're going to have the hope of the resurrection to sustain them after Jesus returns to heaven. They're going to remember what he told them this night, and then they're going to remember it when he came back, and they're going to keep remembering it after he goes back to heaven. Because once you have seen a man who has died and who has lived again, then it changes you. You are not the same after that. Jesus' resurrection is proof that Jesus has conquered the grave. And so when he tells them, 
in verse 33, 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you have may have peace and the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Don't be discouraged. This world has its troubles, but I have beaten it. When Jesus beat death, when he defeated death, he took away the worst curse of sin that there was. And we talked about this last week with Lazarus. And they had seen it with Lazarus, but the thing about Lazarus is Lazarus was going to die again. When Jesus died and was resurrected, he lived on. He lived forever. And if Jesus can beat death, then he can beat anything. He is greater and he is stronger than anything that the world's going to throw at them. The hatred, the troubles that they face, Jesus is bigger. I've got this. This sorrow, it's only going to last for a night. But joy comes in the morning. And the last thing that he tells them to encourage them is this prayer in John chapter 17. He's telling them, I am on your side. I'm in your corner. I'm rooting for you. I am cheering you on. And it calls it's called the high priestly prayer because in it, Jesus is performing the work of the high priest. It was the job of the high priest to intercede on behalf of the people of God, to come before God and to make requests on their behalf, to make atonement for their sins. It was the high priest's job to offer that sacrifice. And here Jesus is kind of on the eve of all of that, and he is interceding for his people. He is pleading with God on our behalf. He prays for himself that through his death that God would be glorified. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And then he says in verse 3, this is eternal life that they know you. Eternal life is knowing God. It is to delight in his goodness, to wander in the wonder of his majesty, to take refuge in the rock that is higher than I, to seek shelter and to rest beneath the shadow of his wings, to meditate on his mercy, to magnify his glory, and to consider all of his perfections one by one from now until eternity. Now, I have heard a lot of people talk about what heaven's going to be like, what they're going to do when they get to heaven, what fishing hole they're going to visit, what mansion they're, you know, what their mansion's going to be like. But y'all, I am convinced that we are going to be so consumed with the glory of God that we may not get to anything else. God is infinite and he is eternal. That means that we can spend forever gazing on his beauty and considering his glory and never, ever reach the end of it. There will always be more to ponder. There will always be more to explore. We can spend forever plumbing the depths of his goodness, of searching out the, to the ends of his love, and we will never, ever reach it. He is that big and that magnificent, and we're going to spend our eternal lives doing those things. Jesus says that eternal life is to know God, to know him, to be so caught up in him that we forget about everything else. 
he knows that he is going back to this heavenly existence. He knows that he is going to be glorified, that he's going to have that glory. He's going to have that majesty again. That Those things that he set aside to come back to earth, he's looking forward to it. It's the joy that was set before him. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Well, this is the joy that's set before him, going home to the Father and getting it ready for us to go there too. He prays then for the disciples in verses 6 through 19. And when he prays for them, he's saying, these people are mine. You gave them to me. I have gathered them together. I have kept them. I have guarded them from harm. And now I am leaving them behind. Father, protect them. Keep them from the evil one. Give them joy. Let my word abide in them. Let them remember it. Protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them. Wash them in the truth. Make them be holy. Help them to grow. And he says, I am sending them just as you sent me. Well, Jesus came to make the Father known. And so now he's passing on that mantle to the disciples. It's now the disciples' job to go and to tell the world about Jesus, to make Jesus known so that through him we might know the Father. And they do exactly that. In the days following the resurrection, when Jesus goes back to heaven, the book of Acts is all about their ministry, their powerful preaching, the wonders that they did, the miracles that they performed in his name. They preached the gospel. They planted churches. They spread the word. And they gave us this. They gave us the New Testament. We are the ones that Jesus is talking about in the rest of this chapter, verses 20 through 26, when he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for us. It is his last night of freedom. It's his, he's moments before the arrest. He knows what's coming before. And how encouraging and how humbling is it to know that in those moments, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And he wasn't just thinking about us. He was praying for us that we would be one in Christ, that we would be perfectly united to him, that we would be united to each other through our love for him, and that God would fill us with his supernatural love so that it could spill out of our lives and that the Father would continue to be known and continue to be glorified through us. Jesus is praying for you and for me. The disciples, they could not have known what was coming, but Jesus did, and he spent that last night preparing them, getting them ready to face it. Just to think about what it must have been like for them to... To, to eat with Jesus, to walk all those dusty streets with them, to gather up all that extra leftover food when he fed the 5,000, to see him giving sight to the blind and to raise Lazarus from the dead, and to see his power made manifest. They knew who he was. They confessed in chapter 16, 
verse 29 and 30. He says, Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They know him like no one else knows him. They have been with him for the whole entirety of his ministry. They have seen and experienced and heard so much. And then they watched him die. And it must have been heartbreaking. We skip past the death and we jump to the resurrection because we know it's coming. We know how the story ends. And so we like to get to that happy ending. But for them, this speech, it must have set off all kinds of alarm bells for them. What is he talking about? What's going on? What's happening? And then just moments later, the soldiers come to arrest him. Peter tries to cut off somebody's ear. I mean, things just kind of go crazy from then on out. Even though he tried to prepare them for it, it wasn't what they expected. This new life in Christ, this serving him, and it's, it's not what they thought it would be right from the very beginning. But everything that he promised them turned out to be true. He did come back. And later they would look back at this night and remember all that he had told them and be encouraged by it. They would go and they would tell everyone what Jesus had said and then their lives would be changed by it. And now we are here because of their faithfulness, because they were encouraged and they were emboldened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were growing in godliness. Their sorrow turned to joy. All of those things happened And you and I are a direct result of it. Now, for us, you know, these words weren't just to encourage the disciples. They were to encourage us too. We need the same reminders that they did. We need to have faith. The kind of faith that is unwavering, that stands strong, even when the world goes haywire. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know I do. Goodness knows I'm a mess on my own. I need him to direct, to lead me, to guide me, to show me the way. I can't do this on my own. I need him to enable and to fill me and to make me into the person that God has created me to be. We need the encouragement to abide and to grow, to stick with it, to remain in Jesus, to get so lost in him that we become like him in the process. That's what it means to abide. We need that. And we need to know that Jesus knew that it wouldn't be easy for us. We need to know the promise that he's coming back and the promise that This trouble, the troubles of this world only last for a little while. We need that encouragement. And we need to know that he's on our side. We need to know that he is in our corner still, even now. You know, we're living in between, in the space between one coming and the next. And it's been nearly 2,000 years, and we are still waiting And we need that reminder that he knew what he was doing and he had a plan and he is coming back. We need that assurance just like they did. 
We need to know that Jesus is there, that he is interceding for us even still, that he is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for his people. We need to know that he is praying for us, that he is spurring us on, that he is enabling us and he's filling us with his love no matter what. No matter what things look like, no matter how alone we feel, no matter the situation that is in front of us, we need the assurance that he has overcome. That is the hope that we're clinging to as we enter this next holy week of Easter. You know, Palm Sunday is just a few days away. There's going to be the cries of hosannas and glory be to the king. But then next Friday, the story changes. We need this hope. We need the promises that he has given us. As we move on in our lives, I pray that these words of Jesus will dwell within us. That he would use them to encourage you. That you would remember his truth and cling to it when all hope seems lost. It worked for the disciples. I bet it would work for us too.